Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. Hi, I'm here with our producer, Graham Chedd, and we're going to give you a look at what's coming up in Season 17 of Clear and Vivid. I love this lineup of people we have that I'm talking to, don't you, Graham? They're great, and we know that because you've already sat down in our virtual studio with uh, some six or seven of them. So we thought in this preview of the season, we'd, we'd play some clips from some of those that we've already recorded. We're starting with someone who's been in your life, if you've watched hit television comedies at all, for the last few decades. After getting his start on the Mary Tyler Moore Show, James Burroughs brought a series like Friends, Cheers, Taxi, Will and Grace, Frasier, The Big Bang Theory. And that's just to name a few of the more than 1,000 shows he's directed or, or helped create. And he has stories about all of them. We both had shows that started low in the ratings and then worked their way up. And we compare notes about that. I was really interested to see in your book that Cheers at the beginning was near the bottom of the ratings. That was exactly what happened to us on MASH. I used to tell people we're in the top 72. <laughs> Huh. And then all of a sudden it turns around. What happened on Cheers, do you know? Because it became a, a, a national event when by the time the series ended. Right. Both MASH and Cheers, uh, there was absolutely no reason to watch them. Because you didn't know who was in them? Nobody was a star in your show and nobody was a star in Cheers. The only, you had a movie going for you. Hmm. We didn't have that. And, and back there in the television, there was no internet. You know, it took a while for shows to to catch on because people had to be shopping in a people who watch the show had to be shopping in a supermarket and saying uh, hey Louie I saw the show last night maybe mm. you should tune it in so as with mash and cheers we, there was no reason to watch we were slotted after taxi on nine o'clock on Thursday night uh, and uh, you know taxi was a fading show then. And there was no reason to watch us. And uh, we were opposite Simon and Simon, which was a very popular show that followed Magnum P.I. And Tommy Selleck back then was a huge star on television. So there was no reason to watch the show. And literally on Thanksgiving of that year, we were 77th out of 77 shows. Mm, and then, well, first of all, we had two big fans. 
Three, actually three. The press. The, the press loved Cheers. Grant Tinker was at MTM then. And Grant Tinker gave myself and the Charles brothers, my partners on Cheers, both our shots in getting into the business. And Brandon Tartikoff was at, uh, was at NBC. And they were big fans of the show. Plus, they'll tell you they had nothing else. <laughs> so uh, they kept us on. And then in the summer reruns, people had already seen Magnum P.I. and uh, Simon and Simon. So they tried other shows. That's what happened to us. So we, we finished ninth one week in the summer. And uh, we, we started to gain a little traction. One of the shows that James Burroughs directed was Taxi. Uh, and a story he told from that experience reminded you of all the auditions you went through as you were beginning your career. Yeah, I, I thought the story he told really captures that brief moment that actors have to somehow stand out at an audition. And one of the things I liked about this was that you see this moment from both the actor's point of view and the producer's. One of the stories I love from the book, because I've, as a young actor, had to go in to auditions and you want to dress like the character, you want to be <laughs> like the character. You hope that somehow walking in, they'll want you to play the part. And you had Danny DeVito coming in to audition for this cynical, mean guy. And he walks in the room and what does he do? He takes a script and throws it on the table and he says, who wrote this shit? <laughs> <laughs> Everybody knew they had the guy as soon as he did that. And and the other great audition story is Chris Lloyd. Yeah. Chris Lloyd comes in for the audition with ratty sneakers, holes in his blue jeans, uh, a shirt open to his navel, uh, a jeans jacket, his hair completely a mess, and does that voice, the Reverend Jim voice. And we all go, oh, my God. And so we hired him on the, we hired him when he left, left, called his agent, hired him. He showed up for rehearsal, for the reading, and all the days after that in the same outfit. <laughs> he didn't want to lose the job. <laughs> he didn't want to lose the job. It's like, Alan, as you were saying, actors, it's, it's incredible. Just to finish the Chris Lloyd story, he showed up all five days in the same outfit, and then on, on, on Taxi, we always had an after-show party. Yeah. On the after-show party, he comes in with a nice white shirt, clean jeans, a jacket. His hair is, his hair is completely combed. So, but I, I was going to say, in, in, in auditioning actors, if you have an actor for a callback, they invariably wear the same outfit they wore for the original <laughs> yes, audition. Right. Well, you don't know what, what the reason is you're being called back for. <laughs> I know. You knew James Burroughs' father, didn't you? How was that? I knew James Burroughs' father. He was Abe Burroughs, and he was a very respected comedy writer. And he wrote the, uh, the book for Guys and Dolls, the musical that my father starred in on Broadway. So I, I met his father... Not quite before he did, because he was he's younger than me, but not that much younger. <laughs> but uh, I, I even told him a story about his father that I don't think he'd ever heard before. Next up, 
there's a guest you are especially keen to talk to is Arthur Brooks. He's a social scientist who had this idea that when you're a young striver, as he was and you were, I guess, you rely on what he calls fluid intelligence, the, the ability to take in and juggle lots of things at once. And then he said that you lose that before too long, right? That's right. Once you get older, you lose some of that ability. But the good news is you gain another one, which is what he calls crystalline intelligence. It sort of sums it up as basically knowledge and wisdom. And he's written a book whose title also sums up his idea, which is From Strength to Strength, Finding Success, Happiness and Deep Purpose in the Second Half of Life. You wondered how he came up with the idea for the book. As a social scientist, the beautiful thing is my laboratory is any place where I overhear human conversations. <laughs> so so if, you know, be careful if you're behind me on the airplane, you might, you might be, wind up in a book. <laughs> so, and, and I was on, as I tell in the book, I was, uh, I was flying in from between Los Angeles and Washington, Dulles Airport, and it was late. And it was what I was doing because I was the CEO of this think tank in Washington, D.C., and flying from place to place, giving a lot of speeches and raising money and doing all the things that people who run nonprofits do. But I was thinking this is pretty unsustainable. I was in my late 40s at the time. I didn't, I, I didn't, I didn't especially like what I was doing, not because it was, it was not a good job, but because I was burnt out and I was tired of it. And quite frankly, and I didn't know it at the time, I was in the wrong place on my fluid intelligence curve hmm. to be doing that. And I was thinking, this is completely unsustainable. And at that time, just at the right time, I heard a conversation of a couple behind me on the plane. And I could tell by their voices that they were elderly, and it was a man and a woman. And I suppose they were married, because it was very intimate. And subsequently, I found out they were married at the time. And the husband was explaining to the wife that he might as well be dead. And his wife was consoling him. Oh, it's don't, it don't say that. It's not true. And then he would go on and say... Nobody remembers me. You know, I used to be somebody, but, and, and I kept thinking to myself, this is probably somebody who was a, maybe an eighth grade teacher who was forced to retire and he's disappointed with his life. And I had this kind of biography in my head. And when the lights came on and we all stood up and I was curious, so I turned around, it wound up being one of the most famous, powerful men in the world, a real hero from the 1960s and 1970s for, you know, events long past, but still extremely well known and very rich and very successful. I mean, look, Alan, he's gonna do 10 times as much as with his life than I am. But I'm thinking to myself, look, if what he did is no guarantee of his satisfaction and happiness, the whole model's wrong. The whole model's wrong. Because the model says basically, go be successful, kill it, um, bank it, die happy. But that's not the way it works at all. I mean, you're, you're always asking yourself, what have you done, what have I done for me lately? That's not, the model of satisfaction says that we have to have something going on all the time and, and you know, past events and the fame and, and, and the adulation of other people, that's not going to do it. And so I actually went in search of what had happened, not specifically to him, but to strivers in general. And I found indeed that people who do a lot early on in life, they tend to be, they tend to struggle more than ordinary people when they're older. And part of the reason is because it's hard to live up to your own expectations, hmm. <laughs> number one. And number two, look, if you never do anything with your life, you won't know when it's over. But if you do a lot with your life, what goes up must come down. And if it goes up really high and then it comes down, it's going to be hard to take. That's sort of this law of psychoprofessional gravitation. It's not fun. It hurts when it's over. 
So I thought to myself, that's why we need to understand what's the cadence of our strengths. Is there a second success curve? What is the set of investments that we can actually make? And that was the beginning of this, that was the beginning of this, uh, this research, which by the way was me search. I wanted to know the answer for me, and I didn't want to be explaining to my wife when I'm in my late 80s on the airplane, my wife, my long-suffering wife Esther, that I might as well be dead. You know, yeah. she doesn't she deserves better than that. And so I did the research and I didn't intend to publish it, actually. I, I meant to do it for myself. But when I was really convinced I was on the right track that these are the habits of the happiest people as they get older, the happiest people in their 60s and 70s and 80s, that, that my wife convinced me that I should probably publish it. Could, who knows? Maybe somebody might like to hear about this as well. Arthur Brooks has seven big elements to gaining happiness in later life. And if you want to know what they are, then make sure you download the second episode of next season's Clear and Vivid. Our next guest is the great pianist, Emmanuel Axe, known to me and Arlene and all his friends as Manny Axe, one of the most down-to-earth, great musicians that you'll ever meet. He's so well-known for being an exquisite pianist, but he's also a very modest person. And I just loved our conversation. You know, I'm always interested when I talk to a musician and hear him talking to one of the most respected musicians in the world. I'm, I'm always interested in comparing your experience with the experience of an actor. They're two performing arts, and I wonder how they, how they compare to one another. For instance, do you get nervous when you, before you go on? I definitely do get nervous. Yeah, still, uh, pretty much every time I play a concert, even if even if there are, let's say, in a weekend, three concerts, repeats of one after the other, a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, I'll probably be differently anxious for each one. I'll be nervous for each one. On the stage, we worry about a second night letdown, the, the night after opening night, after the uh, first really important public performance. We uh -huh. try to guard against letting down all our energy and our concentration. Do you, do you, do you worry yeah. about something like that? I, you know, I, I kind of understand that, but what happens with me is that I get so nervous about not being nervous that I'm nervous <laughs> all over again. <laughs> you, you don't you get know? nervous enough, you're worried. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But then, but then in, in a way, that's the wrong kind of nerves. You know, I, ideally, the most, the most responsive person to, to the positive side of it is, is my friend Yo-Yo Ma. Because Yo-Yo somehow seems to be able to be very excited, but not nervous to the point of where it affects your performance negatively. So it's kind of, he just seems to hit the nail on the head in, in that respect. And I try to learn from him. I do my very best. Well, I remember one night at Tanglewood, you you and Yo-Yo were sharing a dressing room, and we came back to visit you right before the concert. And I was nervous yeah. about distracting you both, because I, <laughs> I like to concentrate right before I go on. And Yo-Yo was cracking jokes and embracing I, people and having fun. And you were over in the corner yeah. at the piano, Still practicing for the performance. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I, I keep 
I keep playing until the last second. But what what was interesting to me about about Yo-Yo and and the jokes and so forth is I just saw a show about Michael Jordan huh. uh, called The Last Dance, and one of his teammates, I think, or actually it was it was Magic Johnson who said about him that he always seemed to be present in the moment. That that's his greatest gift. Mm. And I think in a way that's true for Yo-Yo. Yeah. That's what I would love to steal from him. You know, he cracks jokes and so forth. And when he goes on stage, he's absolutely there. Yeah, he's in whatever that's, moment he's he, in. He's fully in it. Exactly. Exactly. That's a fabulous talent to have. How much a role does the audience play? I think a tremendously important role. I, I think, first of all, because... I am so aware that they're out there. Mm. I, I just, I, I know that there's an audience there and I have no idea how, but there's a kind of back and forth that transmits itself. That's so interesting. Tell audience. me more about that. How, yeah. how do you sense it, it? How can you, can you pin down I, how you feel it? I, I wish, I wish I knew, you know, I, 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 I wonder I wonder sometimes whether it's something like hearing a rustling and not really being being consciously hearing it uh. but that it's a subconscious effect uh or maybe realizing that there's an incredible stillness yes you know you're playing you're playing something and there's a lot of people on the other side of the stage but it's incredibly quiet one of the things I I noticed since we've been wearing masks to concerts mm. and so forth, is that people are coughing a lot less. Oh, that's interesting. You know, so it's, you know, for obviously because they're catching less colds. Yeah. But, but also I think it, it kind of inhibits the coughing impulse or something. And you do become aware of that. You know, you become aware of the stillness. And you said something that made, reminded me of the experience of acting on the stage. There are different kinds of silence there's the quiet in the theater, but they're still breathing. And then yes. at some moments, yeah. that very few that I've experienced, it's almost as though they stopped breathing for a minute. And there's more intense, intense attention. I, and, you, and you can be aware of that, even though you're carrying on with the stuff that's coming out of you. Yeah, I think for, for someone like me, for a musician, it may be that we feel that we're all realizing the incredible beauty or intensity or intimacy of the music. Clear and Vivid, of course, is all about connecting and communicating, and that's exactly what our next two guests do in spades. Uh, Ed Yong and Liz Neely met at a science communication conference. In fact, Liz was only there because she was substituting for a last-minute cancelled speaker. And they immediately recognised uh, a lot in each other, and it ended up with them getting married. And your conversation with them was a, a great example of how they connect and communicate both with each other and with their audiences. Ed did some of the most insightful reporting there's been on the COVID pandemic, and in no small measure thanks to Liz, our first year of the pandemic especially was characterised by us trying to work out what was going on and just going for long walks um, every morning and every evening around our block, um, trying to make sense of the world. 
And a lot of Liz's ideas um, and the theory that she was reading about have found their way into my work. Um, I think less like the science of science communication stuff that we've talked about, but a lot of um, hmm. the sociological work that she'd been reading up on. My, the, the concept that really springs to mind is called the Stockdale Paradox, um, which Liz introduced me to. So he introduced me to it. I don't, I don't think yeah, I've no, ever you heard tell of it. Because you tell it better than I do. So this is a story that resonated with me. I grew up in the military. Um, all over the world. And so when I read about Admiral James Stockdale, um, who had been held prisoner of war for a very long time and tortured routinely over the course of seven years. In what war? Vietnam. Uh And when they asked, how did you survive? He told a story that when people came in to the prison, the optimists would say, we'll be out by Easter. And Easter would come and go. They would say, we'll be out by Christmas. Christmas would come and go. And then Easter would come around again, and they would give up hope. The pessimists just gave up hope from the beginning. But the Stockdale paradox, and what he said was the key to his own survival, is the ability to simultaneously confront the brutal reality of the moment. So look at the truth, no matter how horrible it is, straight in the face, but still maintain an indomitable hope that there was an ending to this story, that there was a way forward, a way out. And so I think holding on to that as a goal for our science communication, that we are curious, we are open to new data, we are not going to be ruled by our emotions, whether it's fear or anger or exhaustion, mm-hmm. but that we still have hope. Yeah, and that's, that's important. Right. And there's there's a lot of that that I've tried to um, maintain myself and also infuse into the pieces. Um, I think writing about the pandemic and what it means for us all is frequently incredibly grim. Um, but the, you know, the overly optimistic view um, threatens us. I think, you know, trying to move past it beyond before we are actually ready to is a very costly error and one that's reflected in the Stockdale Paradox story. And so th- like that story is in one of my earlier pieces. I think I wrote about it in April. Um, and it's also a, a sort of overarching framework for a lot of the work that I've done since. And that definitely all comes from, you know, one of those early morning walks, um, just trying to trying to make sense of all this. Our next guest is Paul Dooley, the wonderful character actor. And it's a kind of a reunion for the both of us because we started out together as young actors. Paul was developing a comedy routine at the time, and I was helping him write it in a cheap spaghetti restaurant called Professor Mazzoni's Spaghetti Factory. I'll never forget that name. You could get a dish of spaghetti out of the machine for a few cents, but it cost, didn't cost very much. And so we were developing a script on a sauce-spattered notebook. And Paul went on to become a character actor who played mostly people's fathers, he, and he calls his book Movie Dad. So we were able to trade stories about our beginnings, and I heard some stories from him that I'd never heard before. What was that story that I loved so much in your book? about when you were in the Navy and you yeah. involuntarily became, became a hero. What, what, what was all that? 
uh, I was chronically seasick. The minute we left port, I was seasick. And uh, uh, up chucking and all that nonsense, you know. Couldn't keep any food down. But they still make you do your work. And at one point, they I'm throwing up over the side of the ship and all that. And I don't want to work. But they don't believe in not working. If that otherwise, everybody would say I'm seasick. Then they wouldn't have to work. <laughs> so they forced me to work not only when I was sick, but sent to the crow's nest, which is the highest point in the ship, moving sideways, back and forth. If you're going to be seasick, that's the last place you go. So I was up there, and I'm watching for enemy ships because we're pretending they're in a war, a mock war. I called them, uh, I forget what they called it, but it was a mock warfare. And uh, a red a red navy and a blue navy, we were enemies. But I'm up there throwing up in a crow's nest. Then I leave there feeling like terrible, go back to get in my bunk to wake me up and said, get a pail of warm water and go to the crow's nest and clean it out. And then I said, the dagger in my heart, of it's bad enough to be sick, now I'm going to have to clean up. So I started climbing a ladder, and I faked falling off the ladder. It was only about four feet. Everybody saw it. There happened to be a lot of people visiting because there were war games, admirals, visiting VIPs, Associated Press, United Press, and everyone's on the bridge watching, and they happen to see me fall. So they decide, they go to the sick bay, and they decide, well, he's got the uh, uh, burst appendix. We're going to have to transfer him to another ship. What made them want to say that you had a burst appendix? They had me on a table, and they're saying, does this hurt? Does that hurt? I can't say I'm seasick. <laughs> uh, so some, I was just guessing. I would say, that doesn't hurt. That doesn't hurt. That hurts a little. I didn't know that was my appendix. <laughs> I said, uh, and every time I said, yeah, I think you got the spot. That's where it hurts. That's what I call acting. So they decided I had a burst appendix. It's all nonsense because I was only seasick. But I figured, okay, transfer me. I'll pretend to have a burst appendix. They can take out my appendix. I don't care. <laughs> so they sent me one, one ship to another about, I don't know, 75 yards away. And there's a, a cable and like this, you know. And if one ship would zig when the other one zagged, you know, could snap the cable. So I put my life in danger to pull off this hoax. I get there and uh, I give them another story. I pretend I don't have any pains anymore. Nothing happened. I'm okay. They said, well, I think you were misdiagnosed. They sent me back home. And now I was a hero on my ship because I almost died. Not. So there were news reports that you had behaved heroically? Well, what happened was, in my hometown paper, and of course all over the country back in the States, uh, my name, my parents' name, uh, he, uh, his life is in danger, you know. And a, the Associated Press sent this kind of thing to every newspaper that there is, because it was war, it was, uh, people were interested in the wartime stuff. So I had to phone my parents on a ship-to-shore phone from the aircraft carrier. Say, it's okay. It was just a mistake, a false alarm. Don't worry about me. I'm okay. Later in the season, your guest is the primatologist Franz Deval, 
who we both met actually some 17 years ago while we were working on the PBS series Scientific American Frontiers. Remember us going down to Yerkes and standing there on the tower overlooking all the chimpanzees running around. I, I remember that so well. And we were tossing something for them to eat into the arena. What was right. it, straw? I can't remember yeah, what it was. Yeah. Just just bunches of vegetation yeah. of some sort. Right? And, and yeah. he introduced me to different chimps that he had come to know personally over the years. It was a really fascinating show we did, and we've kept up with Franz over the years. He was a guest on Clear and Vivid, what, a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah. One of the one of the chimpanzees that was there at the time was one called Donna, who has a role in his new book because she was very large and very masculine in appearance and behaved in a very masculine way and was accepted by both the males and the females as if that was all perfectly normal. And he picks up that thought when he's talking about uh, the role of gender. Uh, and his latest book is called Different. Gender Through the Eyes of a Primatologist. Uh, most of his research has actually been not only with chimpanzees, but also with their near cousins, uh, bonobos. And they're both cousins of ours. And we have this, most people, when they think of their primate cousins, think of chimpanzees, who are, tend to be very male-dominated. But the interesting thing is that bonobos are exactly the reverse. And he's learned a lot of lessons from observing both of them. And they have a lot to teach us about gender diversity. Yeah, there's a lot more flexibility than people assume. So, so people assume that, like some conservative politicians nowadays, they say such things as like there's men and women and that's all there is. And uh, I think things are not so, so simple for us and things are not so simple for our closest relatives. There are indeed males and females, um, but whether they are mutually attracted is not always the case. So, so for example, I consider uh, bonobos perfectly bisexual in the sense that I don't think it matters much for them uh, whether they have sex with a male or a female. So, so sexual orientation is not as clear-cut as people think, and maybe also sexual development. Uh, look at the case of Donna, and I've also, also known males who are not exactly into the macho game. So they may be big males who are not interested in um, getting a high-ranking high position among the other males and stay out of confrontations. And so you have all that variability going on, what we call nowadays in society, we call it gender diversity. So you find all that gender diversity also in the other primates. Uh, and it's unfortunate that our current societies are intolerant of diversity. So, so we, we like to put people in pigeonholes, like you are male, you are female, you are homosexual, you are heterosexual. We like these pigeonholes, but not everything fits, and, and not everybody fits, and, and we are intolerant of the ones who don't fit in these pigeonholes. I don't think we should end our discussion without quoting the last sentence of your book. Uh -huh. And it all comes down to mutual love and respect and appreciation of the fact that humans do not need to be the same to be equal. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't think difference between the genders is the issue. So, so if you look, look at the word gender inequality, which is really the issue that we are addressing, uh, people have focused too much, in my opinion, on gender as the issue. The inequality is the issue, and the injustice that is associated with it is the issue. 
people have made an issue of gender and said maybe we should get rid of genders and be gender neutral and uh, genders are not as important as we think and so on. Uh, I think we have focused on the wrong issue. We should focus on the inequality and try to fix that. So that's just half a dozen of the conversations we've already recorded. And among those still to come, well, we couldn't let a male be the only one to give us a perspective on gender. So you'll also be talking to Lucy Cook, whose new book's title nicely sums up her take on gender, Bitch, A Revolutionary Guide to Sex, Evolution and the Female Animal. (laughs) We'll also be hearing from an ornithologist who remarkably has become the foremost expert on how to counter disinformation. That's a fascinating story. A young liberal Mexican-American whose parents voted for Trump. And on what she's learned from that experience about talking to people with very different views to yours. And the secret ingredient is curiosity. And we'll also be talking to astronomer Katie Mack, who's written a surprisingly highly entertaining guide to, as the title of a book says, The End of Everything. Can't wait to hear about that. I hope if your interest was piqued by some of these snippets we gave you on this this episode today, that you listen to the whole show because they're wonderful conversations with really interesting people. Uh, yes, and in fact, tomorrow uh, we have a very special episode of Clear and Vivid, which will be uh, on the day that the winners of this year's Cavalier Prize in Science are announced. And Alan will be talking to a couple of those winners tomorrow on Wednesday, which is unusual for us to have a Wednesday show. And then next week, a couple more of those winners of the Cavalier Prize. And then season 17, the one we've been talking about, will start the week after that on June the 14th. Bye-bye. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. In the California Road Trip Republic, we believe you take adventure for a ride. Whether coastal cruising mountain motoring or redwood roaming discover beauty around every turn your california road trip can kick off from anywhere starting route but it should always start at visitcalifornia.com then buckle up crank those tunes and ride with us in the california road trip republic want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at discounttire.com meet treadwell your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle get your best match in one minute or less with treadwell by discount tire meet stacy stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses call me picky but i just can't find the one luckily for stacy walmart vision has virtual try on Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? (laughs) Yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details.